Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus, which is one of Paul's pastoral epistles, as, as they're called, along with 1 and 2 Timothy, where Paul is really preparing the church for, um, for its, its life in a world without the apostles. He's preparing for the days when the likes of himself and the other apostles were no longer uh, be around. And so what we, we have here are instructions uh, for us today as a church of Jesus Christ. And this morning we shall just consider uh, the, uh, the greeting uh, that Paul gives to his young disciple in the faith, uh, Titus. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let's hear God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Well, I assume that you want to be a healthy Christian, and I assume also that you want the church, including this church, to be a healthy and a holy and hopefully a somewhat happy church. And here in this short letter that we'll be considering, I guess, over the next few weeks, Paul is essentially telling his his friend, his companion, his disciple in the faith, Titus, what he needs to do for the health, for the spiritual health and spiritual well-being of the church or churches on the island of Crete. It seems that, that Paul, although this isn't recorded in the book of Acts, it seems that Paul had planted a church on the island of Crete and he had then left uh, Titus, his, his trusted disciple, to, as he puts it in verse 5, put what remained into order. So Paul wants, wants Titus uh, to establish uh, proper order in the, in the church or the churches in Crete. That, that's why he's writing to him. That's his purpose in writing to Titus. And Putting what remains into proper order involves, and we'll see this in, in subsequent weeks, it involves appointing elders, verses 5 to 9. It involves rebuking opponents, silencing opponents, verses 10 to 16. And it also involves teaching sound doctrine, chapter 2 and following. And what is uh, so very notable as, uh, as you read through this letter to Titus 
is, is the emphasis that Paul places on the absolute necessity of good works. You, you see it there in, in chapter 2 and verse 7 where he exhorts Titus to show himself in all respects to be, as he puts it, a model of good works, which is quite a challenge for those of us who are pastors. Be a model of good works. Uh, but it's not just pastors who have to be devoted to good works. It's also Christians in, in general. He says in verse uh, 14 of chapter 2 that, that Christ has redeemed the people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then he goes on in chapter 3 to tell Titus to remind the church that they are to be ready for every good work. And then in verse 8, that we are to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. And then finally in verse 14, right at the end of the letter, the people are to learn to devote themselves to good works. You see there, don't you, this, this repeated insistence that Christians must be people of good works. They must be people who devote themselves to good works. And this emphasis on good works is, thankfully, coupled with an equally strong emphasis on the gospel. And we see that especially in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2, right at the heart of the letter, and then also in chapter 3, verses 4 to 8. And, and so you have these two main themes, really, in the book of Titus, the theme of the gospel and the theme of godliness being devoted to good works. And, and what's so very clear is that these two realities are inseparably linked. They, they always go together not just in Titus, but throughout the whole Bible. And they go together in the sense that the gospel lies at the root of godliness and godliness is the inevitable fruit of the gospel. That's how they relate to one another. The gospel, in a sense, comes first. It's the root and it produces the fruit of godliness and good works. And it's this... This thing, what we might call gospel godliness, that is the thing that, 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 that makes and also marks healthy churches and healthy Christians. Healthy churches are, are marked and made by uh, preaching the gospel, by believing the gospel, by knowing and loving the gospel, and, and then by uh, the, the people leading lives of, of godliness and good works in response to the gospel. And here in, in the opening four verses of his uh, letter to Titus, we see, we see Paul really highlighting uh, these themes, which he'll then develop later on uh, in his letter. These, these themes are, are brought out here in verses 1 to 4 in, in what I've called a, a sort of gospel-shaped salutation or a gospel-shaped greeting and we see him highlighting three things in in particular the first of what of which is this that that it's the gospel that brings salvation three very simple truths this morning but good for us i think at the start of the year to be reminded of them that the, the first of which is that the gospel is what brings salvation paul begins his letter 
to Titus by identifying himself as a servant of God and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul was one of the the select band that was appointed by the Lord Jesus to be an authoritative witness to his death and to his resurrection. That was Paul's special calling to to preach the, the, the apostolic gospel as an authoritative teacher, uh, divinely appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was, he was called to preach this gospel, this apostolic gospel, which came from Jesus Christ for, as he puts it in verse 1, the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. In other words, Paul served as an apostle so that through his preaching, people might become Christians. That was what he worked for. He he preached the gospel. He taught the gospel. He wrote the gospel down so that people might be saved. That's what he means when he speaks of doing what he did for the sake of people's faith and their knowledge of the truth. Those, those two expressions refer to the same reality. They refer to the reality of, of saving faith, to be absolutely precise, and to saving knowledge, a saving knowledge of the truth. And so Paul's, Paul's service as an apostle, his labors as an apostle, had as their goal the salvation of sinners. And I want you to note this morning that for Paul, there was absolutely no contradiction whatsoever between God's election of sinners to salvation on the one hand and on the other, the necessity for him and others to preach the gospel so that such elect sinners might be saved. Paul knew that it was only by God's electing grace that sinners were saved. He knew that it was all by God's sovereign, gracious choice That's why he speaks of the faith of God's elect. But Paul also knew that sinners would only be saved, elect sinners would only be saved through the preaching of the apostolic gospel. The the two just went together in Paul's mind. Election, what you might call the eternal cause of salvation. And then gospel preaching, what you might call the instrumental cause of salvation. And between these two causes, there is absolutely no contradiction whatsoever. There is a beautiful harmony. And so Paul served as an apostle. He, he preached the gospel. He taught the gospel. He wrote the gospel down in his letters so that God's elect might come to faith and to a knowledge of the truth. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, I just want to say to you that the reason you are, the reason that you have faith, the reason that you have a knowledge of the truth is because God has elected you. It's because God has chosen you, not because you deserved to be chosen by him, but purely because he decided to choose you in his grace. That's why you are a Christian. And you also have faith and the knowledge of the truth because because you've come into contact with the gospel, with the apostolic gospel. And aren't you grateful this morning 
Aren't you grateful that, that God has chosen you? That God elected you in eternity and set his, his saving love upon you? And aren't, aren't you grateful that, that you have come into contact with the gospel, that you have heard the gospel of God's saving grace? Aren't, aren't you grateful, in a word, that you have been saved? That you have faith and a knowledge of the truth? And don't you want others to know such gratitude and such joy. Paul served tirelessly as an apostle so that people might become Christians, so that they might have a common faith with him and with Titus. None of us, I know, is an apostle, but but we do have the apostolic gospel, this deposit of God's truth. And it is our duty and hopefully also our joy to share this, this treasure, this apostolic gospel with the world, with our friends and family members and others. And it, it is, I have to say, in particular, the duty of preachers and pastors like me to preach this apostolic gospel for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Because if it's not preached, how will people hear Jesus? And if they don't hear Jesus, how will they believe in him? I mentioned at the prayer meeting just this past Thursday how good it was to see so many non-Christians at our carol service just, just a few weeks ago. It was, it was a joy to see them, to see the church full of, of Christians and, and also a good number of non-Christians. And, and I, I would encourage all of us in the year ahead to pray that those people, and others of course, but, but to pray that those people who came to that carol service would come back to church this year. Not just to the next carol service, whenever that might be, but, but, but to our sort of regular services. Let's pray that the Lord would bring them back, that they would hear the gospel, the true, pure, apostolic gospel, and so come to faith and to a knowledge of the truth. Let, let's, let's pray, let's labor for the sake of the salvation of God's elect people. It is the gospel then that brings salvation. And then secondly, it is the gospel that accords, as Paul puts it, with godliness. Paul served as an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. What does he mean by godliness? Essentially, he means being like God, being like Jesus Christ. And what Paul says here is that godliness is, is that which is consistent with saving faith and a saving knowledge of the truth. It's that which comes from saving faith and saving knowledge. And, and therefore the, the, the godly man, the godly woman is the one who, who through the apostolic gospel has, has faith in Jesus and has a, a knowledge a deeply personal knowledge of Jesus. It is, it is faith in 
Jesus, knowledge of Jesus which accords with godliness. Why? Because you are by faith and by knowing Christ brought into union with the one who is the the godly man. And so when you are saved, you are you are by definition godly, but but at the same time we must say that 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 godliness is a thing of degrees. Every Christian is by definition godly because every Christian is in Christ, the man of God. But at the same time, some Christians are more godly than others. Some, some Christians are just more like Jesus than, than others. To put it another way, saving faith, saving knowledge, they are shared equally by all Christians, but not sanctifying faith, not sanctifying knowledge. And it should, of course, be your ambition to, to grow in godliness. I, I, I hope it is your, your ambition and your desire. I hope your great longing is, in the words of Robert Murray McChain, to become as holy as a pardoned sinner can be in this world. And how will you grow in godliness? How, how will you become as holy as a pardoned sinner can be in this world? Well, remember what godliness accords with. Godliness accords with faith in Christ, with knowledge of Christ. Which faith and which knowledge comes through the gospel? And so godliness and growth in godliness really consists in becoming more and more acquainted with the gospel. It consists in becoming more and more acquainted with the privileges that you have in the gospel. It consists in becoming increasingly acquainted with Jesus Christ. Growing in godliness involves digging down more deeply into the rich treasures of the gospel. I remember one time as a fairly young Christian, I was an undergraduate and a fellow student said to me, and I think a few others that were with us, that, that they wanted to go to a church which went beyond the gospel. And uh, I think what he meant, to be fair to him, and I don't want to come across as being overly critical or anything like that, but I, th- I think what he meant is that he wanted to go to a church which, which didn't just kind of give a simple evangelistic presentation every Sunday. And you know what I mean by that. And of course, we, we, we do want more than just a simple evangelistic presentation every Sunday. But, but still, I, I remember thinking at the time that, that it just wasn't altogether helpful. In fact, it was possibly downright dangerous to, to just talk about going beyond the gospel because, of course, you, you never get beyond the gospel. You, you can't get beyond the gospel. There is, I know, a wonderful simplicity about the gospel such that even the youngest child can understand it. But there is, isn't there, also an immeasurable breadth and depth 
uh, to the gospel that will forever stretch and expand uh, our minds as well as enlarge our hearts. You see, the gospel is unsearchably rich. It's unsearchably rich because it is all about Jesus Christ who is himself unsearchably rich. And, and it is your pleasure. It is your delight. It is your joy to, to explore these riches as a Christian. God's riches have been opened up to you. His treasures have been made widely available to you. And it's, it's your pleasure to acquaint yourselves increasingly with them to, to get to know Christ and his gospel better. And it's, it's as you do so, it's as you dig down more deeply into the gospel that you will grow as a Christian and become more godly. And if I, if I may just make one very specific application to you in this regard, I, I would encourage you at the beginning of a new year, maybe you've made some resolutions, I don't know, maybe you've already broken your resolutions, but I would encourage you at the start of a new year to resolve to memorize more scripture. I don't know, maybe it's a lost art in the church today. But seek to memorize more scripture in the year ahead. And don't try and do too much all at once. Just, here's a suggestion, just do one psalm a month. One psalm a month. You can do that. I know you can do that. You're a clever bunch. And you can memorize. And start small. Start with Psalm 100. And then gradually build up to Psalm 119 by the end of the year. You can do it. Get the word of God into your head. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Commit it to memory. Because the more it gets into you, the more it takes over you, the the more it will just flow out of you. And you will grow in grace and godliness. So the gospel brings salvation. It accords with godliness. And then thirdly, and finally, the gospel reveals our certain hope. We, we see here in Paul's greeting to Titus that, that the Christian life, if I can put it this way, starts with saving faith and saving knowledge. And then we go on as Christians, as people of faith and knowledge. We, 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 we seek to grow in, in godliness. And we do all of this with our eyes fixed ahead, fixed on the future, fixed on what's coming towards us. We do all of this, as Paul puts it, in hope of eternal life. As, as Christians, we live in hope of living forever. We live in hope of, as Paul puts it in chapter 2, of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That, that, that's what we're looking forward to. Not just eternal life in a sort of abstract way, but, but living with the Lord Jesus Christ in the glorious new creation forever. That's our hope, and, and this hope is, is not wishful thinking in the way that we speak of hope in the world today. No, this hope is, is certain. It's always certain in the Bible. And it's certain because God, who never lies, promised 
before the ages began, to give his people, his elect, eternal life. Now, when Paul speaks of God promising before the ages began, I was somewhat surprised to read this past week that Calvin actually thinks that uh, this refers to the promise that God made in the Garden of Eden to send a saviour. And, you know, who am I to disagree with, with Calvin? I, I'm more inclined to, to think that Paul here is speaking of, 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 a, of a promise that God made in eternity before the creation of the world, a sort of intra-Trinitarian covenant. But either way, the emphasis is on the fact that God has promised to give his elect eternal life. And we can be certain that God will keep his promise because God is not a Cretan. What were Cretans like? Verse 12 of chapter 1. Cretans are always liars. Maybe there's a bit of hyperbole there. But Cretans were known for their immorality, for their decadence, for their infidelity, for their lies. Here are these Christians on Crete, surrounded by that kind of culture. God never lies. God cannot lie. God can only speak the truth. And how do we know that this is what God, who never lies, has promised? I mean, we weren't there when he made the promise, whether that promise was made in, a, in eternity or in uh, the Garden of Eden. Well, we know God's promise to give us eternal life because he's revealed it to us. He's revealed it to us here in, in Titus and in many other places as well. As Paul says in verse 3, at the proper time, God manifested, manifested his promise, his gospel promise, his promise of eternal life. He manifested it in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. You see, in God's own perfect timing, and God always times things perfectly, when he decided that the time was just right, he revealed the fullness, the fullness of his promised grace through the word of the apostles. He revealed the, the, the fullness of his promised grace through the word that was preached by apostles like Paul and through the word that was then subsequently written down by apostles like Paul. Preached and written down, please notice, by the command of God our Savior. Paul and his fellow apostles did not preach and did not write down words that they came up with on their own, words that they themselves imagined and, and invented. No, they, they preached and they wrote down the very words of Christ himself. They were his lieutenants, his ambassadors. They spoke the words of Christ. And through these apostles, 
that Christ himself had appointed and anointed. God our Saviour revealed his salvation, the fullness of his salvation, ending in eternal life. He revealed it to us, to the church today. Jesus, through his apostles, through his gospel, has manifested his gracious promises to us. And therefore, we have hope. We have hope. Yes, because we have eternal life and because we know we have eternal life, because it's it's been written down that we have eternal life. God has told us in his word through the apostles. And surely this shows us, doesn't it, that a healthy church is a church where the word of God, the scriptures, are absolutely central. An unhealthy church is a church which sidelines the scriptures, which doubts, even denies the scriptures. That kind of church will always, in the end, be unhealthy. It will decay and it will die. A healthy church is the church where the Bible is central because that is where we hear God speaking to us. We need the Bible. We need the preaching of the Bible. Isn't this what you constantly need? I know it's what I constantly need. I get the, the privilege of studying the Bible for a job. So I hear it every day. I know it's perhaps harder for you, but certainly on the Lord's Day, every week as we gather together, we have the privilege of hearing God. We are hearing God through his word. And in a world of so much hopelessness, in a world where there is so much darkness and so much despair and so much death, in a world where lies and liars are rampant, don't you constantly need to hear the pure and true and glorious word of God? Don't you constantly need to hear the wonderful promises of God? Don't you constantly, week after week after week, need to hear your Savior saying to you, look, I know that you are sometimes just like a Cretan. I know that you lie as well as sometimes being lied to. I know that you deceive, that you mislead. I know that you sin. I never do. I never do. And though you don't deserve it, I have promised to give you eternal life. That's what God, your Savior, is saying to you now as you sit on your chairs. God, your Savior, is saying to you, whatever you've done in the past week, however badly you've fallen, I promise that you have eternal life. Well, Paul closes his opening greeting to Titus by calling him his true child in a common faith. Titus is Paul's child. Paul is Titus's spiritual father. He has a certain authority, I suppose, over him, but they share a common faith. And then he pronounces the blessing upon him. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It is, I think, a suitably encouraging closing to what is 
a very encouraging gospel-shaped greeting. Here, in just a few words, Paul has reminded Titus of of the gospel that, that brings salvation, the gospel that accords with godliness, the gospel that reveals our certain hope of eternal life. And in doing so, what Paul has done is to highlight in advance what he will develop later on in his letter, which is that what the churches on Crete most need is in the end the gospel. That's what they most needed. That's what we most need. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what makes for healthy churches. That is what makes for healthy Christians. So as we embark upon a new year, I I pray and I trust that you pray as well that we as a church will grow in health and in holiness and even in a measure of happiness. I pray that we will do so by by just continuing to preach the gospel and to believe the gospel and and then to live in response to the gospel. I I pray that all of you who have a faith in common with, with Paul and with Titus, I pray that all of you will be encouraged this year, above all else, in, in the gospel, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel by which you have been saved, by which you are being saved, and by which you will be saved forevermore. Amen.